John chapter 6, verses 60 and 66 through 69. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Kyle. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Ben. I'm the associate pastor here. If you, uh, well, I guess if you are a visitor here with us, I hope that one of the things you experience in our midst is that this is a community, whether you believe or don't believe in the story of Jesus, is a, a community that is willing to ask questions. A, a place where we are willing to bring our doubts and our concerns to God, because questions have a way of working in us that, that make us more honest, right? They lead to more honest conversations. They cut through some of the fluff. Over the last several weeks, so we've been taking a look not at ask the questions we ask God, but the, the questions God asks us. In the person of Jesus in his earthly ministry, the Gospels tell us numerous questions, numerous interactions he has with people where, uh, where Jesus looks at them and he asks them a question, a question that brings them to a place of honesty, a question that, that, that cuts through their assumptions, that cuts through their blind spots. And today is no different. You heard it just as Kyle read it. We come to this question that's this. Jesus, on seeing many of the people who have followed him, people who have said that they have loved him, if they have walked away, he turns to his 12, his closest friends, and he says, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? It's one of those questions that maybe, if you're a church kind of person, you think's a, an easy question to answer, one that you can almost assume the answer to, one that is, has been rehearsed over and over and over again in your life. But before we make an easy answer, I caution us, because Jesus is after something more than an easy answer. He's after an honest answer. It's funny to ask this question on the beginning of Holy Week, this week that leads up to Easter. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that this is Palm Sunday, the Sunday that, 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 that the crowds gathered in Jerusalem to chant Jesus' name, to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, here comes the King. And yet, somehow, from Sunday to Friday, the crowds turn. They choose to go a different direction. And at almost assuredly, somebody who cried Hosanna on Sunday is saying, crucify him by Friday. We come and we see these disciples, people who would assume that they know the answer to the question, of course, Jesus, we will follow you. And yet we know the story of the crucifixion that those who are closest to Jesus, those who have pledged their loyalty, those who are most confident that they know the answer to this question, run away. They scatter, they flee. The 12, the, 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 those who are, are nearby, you know, the women do a little bit better. They have a little more gumption, a little more courage. 
But at the end, there's nobody with Jesus. All have fallen away. So before we answer with an easy answer, let's take a look at at ways that we might be a little bit dishonest with ourselves. Questions that that we, if we want to take Jesus' question seriously, things that we have to deal with. We're going to look at two things, two ways that I think we can be dishonest with ourselves with this question. And then we'll take a look at, at what we might find, what we might find if we're willing to be honest. The question is this, do you want to go away as well? The easy answer if you're a church person is, of course not. No, I never would want to leave. But that certainty is something that might be keeping you from honesty. That certainty may be keeping you from Jesus. What do I mean? Well, uh, I don't know if any of you are Grizzlies fans. I'm guessing we have one or two in the bunch. But you remember a couple months ago, there was a, a little altercation between like half of the Grizzlies bench and this uh, TV commentator, uh, ex-NFL uh, pro Shannon Sharp, right? If, if you don't follow that, you may have seen the picture. Shannon Sharp is this mountain of a man. He is a big hulking man in a blue cardigan just yelling, and, and all the Grizzlies players are lined up on the other side yelling. It's one of these silly and, and childish things that happen uh, in sports sometimes. But Shannon was arguing and he was fighting because he was coming to the defense of his good friend, LeBron James. And in the, 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 uh, the media room after the game, some, the, the reporters asked LeBron James uh, to comment on him, right? They, they want to know, what do you think about what transpired? What, do you, what is your message that you have for Shannon? And this is a question that LeBron does not want to answer honestly, Right? I would imagine as a, you know, mature adult, he would probably have to say, yeah, that was a little childish. That was silly. That was posturing. His honest answer would have to be that that's inappropriate. But he doesn't want to have to face the question of, of publicly disowning his friend. So he instead goes with this uber confident response, this uber certain response. He says, I ride with Shannon 365 days. 366 on a leap year, 24-7, that's my guy. I always got his back, and he's got mine. Do you notice how ridiculously he exaggerates his confidence, how exaggerate he, he, he exaggerates his certainty? Do you also notice that he doesn't answer the question, right? What do you think about Shannon? What do you think Shannon ought to do? It's the same sort of confidence that we see out of Peter uh, on the night that our Lord was betrayed, right? The night that Jesus sat with his disciples and Peter says, Jesus, there is no way on earth I will ever leave you. Jesus, I would die before I leave. They're both ways of hiding the, the confrontation, they're both ways of hiding from the words that have been spoken. They're, they're ways of hiding ourselves from the implication. One of the things that I love about this passage as we come here is that in this moment in time, Peter doesn't resort to an easy answer. He doesn't turn to an answer that ignores the difficulty of following Jesus. 
Instead, it seems that he acknowledges it. He says, where else would we go? What else would we do? How else would we even think about the world if we left? Which is very, very different from saying, Jesus, never, ever, ever would I leave you. And here's why that's so important. Because following Jesus is really hard. Following Jesus has always been and will always be hard because Jesus does not do what we expect him to do, and he does not say the things we want him to say. Jesus' message has always been and will always be hard to hear and even harder to accept. You see it here in verse 60. It says, many of the disciples heard what Jesus said. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? What was it that Jesus had been saying? Well, he'd been saying some pretty crazy stuff. He'd been saying these big, sweeping, universal claims. He said, I am the bread of life. To a group of Jews living in in the first century Palestine who had followed after several different rabbis, who had learned and, and tried to understand the ways of the world, Jesus comes in with this big, sweeping, bold claim. He says, the world eats. The world has life because I have provided it for them. Just because they're ancient people doesn't mean that they don't bristle at that kind of of claim on their life just as much as you and I. Jesus says stuff that's just weird. It's kind of gross. This is, he says this a few verses earlier. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now, you're used to those kinds of, that kind of language because we taught, use that kind of language over here when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? But think about if you're a first century Jew living in Palestine and somebody starts talking about feeding on flesh. It's weird. It's gross. It sounds presumably like cannibalism to, to somebody else. It's not exactly the kind of moment you want to put your arm around Jesus and say, yeah, we're, we go together. He and I. Jesus makes exclusive claims. He says, no one can come, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. These are all right here in this one little context. In this short little context, Jesus makes these claims and he says, I know you think you know what you're doing. I, th- I know you think that you are independent and you think for yourselves, but in reality, you can't even understand what I'm saying. It's offensive. It's exclusive. It's universal. It's weird. And so people left. People walked away. And we can read those things and, and, and we can pretend like they are not embarrassing. We can pretend like they're not offensive. We can pretend like they're not difficult to accept. But if we do so... We're just lying to ourselves. I came across a short story recently written by Flannery O'Connor. And before you think that I'm smart enough to just read short stories of Flannery O'Connor on my time, uh, I'm stealing this from another sermon I heard. But this story is a good man is hard to find. And if you've read it before, you've been introduced to this, uh, this character this, uh, she's just called grandmother in the story. 
grandmother's from Atlanta, Georgia, and she is a, she's a force to be reckoned with. She's a lady. She is proper. She is a Christian, and, and she is quite certain of those facts. But she's also incredibly dishonest. Not with other people. She doesn't tell other people lies. She's dishonest with herself. A fact that is brought to the surface in the story as she is confronted with this heinous, evil, violent man that's just called the misfit. A man who is, is wild and evil, but he is honest. And as the conversation turns and as it becomes a life and death situation, as there is violence at hand, the question, you start to realize that, that, that Jesus She's never experienced a Jesus. Jesus is somebody that she puts on like her white gloves. It's an identity like the lace that she wears. Jesus is something that's in her waters. But as the misfit threatens her life, she begins to unravel. And you can see that, that the misfit has a much clearer, much more honest understanding of Jesus than she does. The misfit at the end, the voice of, of honesty says this, she would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her at every minute of her life. Because the threat of violence brought out in her an honesty that she otherwise hid. She hid in, in, a, in a moderacy. It hid in a culture. It hid in an identity. But she never actually engaged with Jesus. She never actually dealt with what he claimed. So many of us grow up thinking that we're good Christians if we don't have questions. If our conversation with God is, is never frustrated, if we never are angry, if we are never uh, offended. We think we're good Christians if we live our lives in such a way that we're never convicted with the sin that is in it, but it could not be farther from the truth. Because if Jesus does not ever offend you, if Jesus not, does not ever convict you, if you don't ever have questions or frustrations with Jesus, you're probably not dealing with the Jesus who said, eat my, eat my body and drink my blood. So when Jesus asks us, do you want to go away as well? So many of us have glossed over the, the reasons that frustrate us in following Jesus. But if we're to follow him well, we have to doubt our certainty and come to him ready to listen. But it's not just our, our certainty that needs to be doubted if we're going to be honest. It's also our despair. The disciples are in a tough spot. Right? In verse 66, it says, after these things, many of his disciples, the, the, the wider crowd of people following Jesus, turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. Have you ever done something when everyone else leaves? Right? Have you ever played uh, one of these silly um, icebreaker games, right? Uh, where it's like the room, you're in a room and uh, everyone's got to stand up and, okay, line up over here if you uh, like M&Ms uh, or line up over here if you prefer Skittles, right? And everyone shuffles over to the side of the room that they want to be on. Um, you know, the, what's the proper way to 
load the dishwasher? Should, you know, should the silverware go down or, or stick up, right? And you go to one side or, or the other. It's like, do you want to, which is better, Android or uh, Apple? And, you know, everyone goes to Apple and I'm over here by myself, right? But have you ever done that? Have you ever been by yourself on one side of the room and everyone else in the room thinks something differently from you? Even in a silly icebreaker game, it is alienating. It is embarrassing. It makes you start going, what's wrong with me? Did I not hear the question correctly? Have I not uh, thought this all the way through? We start to get worried and afraid because being in this spot is terrible. And it should be. You know, we like to think, again, we like to think that we're independent thinkers. We model this as a society. But the reality is, is that thinking is a social activity. Author Alan Jacobs, he says this, thinking is necessarily thoroughly and wonderfully social. Everything you think is a response to what someone else has thought and said. And if that's true, then that makes good reason for why we feel so much anxiousness and being in the middle of a crowd that thinks and believes differently than we do. Because there is real pain. There's real concern to find yourself on the opposite side of the room. But when it comes to Jesus, it's not just a silly icebreaker game, is it? If you live in Midtown and you are, are having a drink with your neighbor there is a very good chance that everyone on the porch sitting with you thinks that you are an idiot, that you are out of your mind, that, 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 that what you believe just doesn't make sense. If you're a Christian and you live in Midtown, it's not just that you're an idiot, but that it's also that you are complicit complicit with the, the evil that they believe that Jesus taught, the, the, the radical teachings that he brought, that's a really tough place to be. One that makes you start reeling in, in embarrassment, fear, and rejection. What if the group you sit with is a group of people who are experiencing extreme bitterness, anger, hostility, because they have received from Christian wounds and abuse and slander. To be in that room is, a, is to be overwhelmed in despair. And so many of us try to find a way out. And the easiest way to hide from the question is to answer Jesus and say, absolutely. You are vile, you are evil, what, the, what you have begun, what you are teaching leads to destruction in this world. Despair leads us to an easy answer of, of following the train of people who walk away from Jesus and saying, that's just a little too weird, that's a little too gross, that's a little too obscene, Jesus. It's easy to walk away, but have we dealt with the question you see, when you uh, are, are blinded by your confidence, you just kind of ignore what Jesus has to say. But when you're in the midst of despair, you try to silence Jesus. And you say, Jesus, we will not listen. But in either case, you've not dealt with the Jesus who's talking. 
In either case, you can't honestly answer the question because you haven't heard what he has to say. And so we need to doubt our certainty and we need to doubt our despair because it is only when we overcome those obstacles that we can hear what he has to say, which leads us to our way forward. You know, Peter, when he sat there or stood there, whatever, whatever they were doing at that moment of time, when he was there with Jesus that day, he did not have the capability to understand what Jesus was talking about. Any more than anyone else on that day, he would have been hearing words like feed on flesh and drinking blood, and he would not know what Jesus is talking about. And there's a very good chance that he would not have liked the sound of what Jesus was saying. He likely, just like everyone else, would have felt some, some defensiveness when Jesus says, you can't understand what I'm saying unless if the Spirit helps you. And yet there is something that, that is different in Peter's response than those who leave. And that is, is that he trusts Jesus. He doesn't trust in things about Jesus. He trusts Jesus, the person. And why? Let me tell these quickly. Because Peter is convinced that to walk away from Jesus is to walk away, to be shut out from the goodness of this life and the hope of this life. Look quickly with me here at Simon Peter's answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, you and I, when we hear those words, eternal life, we just think of, of life that goes on forever, right? A temporal category, which is, is certainly part of what he is getting at. But in the book of John, eternal life never just means life that lasts a really long time, an infinite amount of time. Eternal life refers to life with God. Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full, to abundance. Jesus said, this is eternal life in John 17 that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. A life with God is what Jesus is referring to, a life that, that, that embraces the goodness of God's created order. And you and I say here, and no matter how inoculated we are with the message of, of, of naturalism, of materialism, that we are just a, a pile of, of cells, a, a pile of atoms, we persist. Our hearts ache for things like beauty, belonging, goodness, love. Words that make no sense if you're talking about our current understanding of our biology. And yet, we are convinced, we are convinced that human lives matter, that they are uh, intrinsically beautiful. There's nobody who looks at what happens at Nashville this week and says, and it doesn't matter. It's just a few, few less mouths to feed. No, we're devastated because we know that the loss of human life is a travesty. Why? Because we know we were made for something more than this world. Because we know that we were made for a life with God. We know that we were made for a life that is, is, is in flesh and in spirit. We know that we were made to be with him. So when Peter says, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what you're talking about with that stuff, Jesus, 
Jesus, I'm a little offended. He still says, I can't walk away because you are the only one who is giving a message that makes sense of the fullness of human experience. Jesus, to walk away from you now would be to walk away from believing the goodness of this world. But he doesn't stop at that. He, he goes on. He says, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now remember, Peter is a Jew, and the Jews believed in this character of the Messiah, the Messiah who is a Savior, right? Who One who takes things that are broken, and he puts them back together again. One who takes that which is, is beaten down and restores it to hope. When Peter is claiming is, is that, Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the one in your person who will bring redemption. That when I look out at the world and I see all the millions of ways that it is shattered and broken, I believe that it can be made new again because of you. That as racked as I am with the depravity of humankind, Jesus, you restore dignity to the most violent the most sinful among us. He's saying that where death seems to have the final word in every aspect of life that I can see, Jesus, you confirm to me that death is not the way that it is supposed to be, that death will be no more. And so Peter says, I've got questions and I've got doubts, but Jesus, where else can I go? You are the place of goodness. You are the place of hope. You are the one who is telling the story that makes sense of the human condition. And so amidst the noise of his heart and the doubts in his mind, he deals with Jesus as a person. He says, Jesus, I trust you. You are the one with eternal life. You know, I said at the beginning that it's, uh, it's good for us to open this, to talk about this on Holy Week, right? Because we see in, in, the, in the unfolding events of Jesus's arrest and his crucifixion, the, the scattering, the leaving of his people. But perhaps it's most helpful for us, not because we can see the disciples who run away, but we see the Jesus who stays, a Jesus who, who is completely devoid of the typical human struggles for comfort, power, and popularity. One who instead chose scorn, pain, suffering, death. Who chose blood and weeping because he firmly believed that he was bringing us life. And life to the fullest. Peter looked Peter followed Jesus, not because he was certain of every word that Jesus said, not because he was comfortable with every word that Jesus said. He stayed with Jesus because Jesus was all that he had. And so when Jesus looks at us this morning, and he asks us, do you want to go away as well? When Jesus looks at us and he inquires us, implores us, excuse me, to be honest with ourselves. He intends to shake us and rattle us out of a false sense of, of certainty that has made us ignore what he has to say. 
and he intends to, to, to shake us and to remind us that to walk away in despair will lead us with nothing but more despair. What he wants us to see is that he is our Savior. A couple decades later, a follower of Jesus would reflect on the life of Christ. And he would uh, speak of himself and he would say, but I am not ashamed. I am not afraid uh, that I'm not racked with doubt. I'm not racked with fear. I'm not racked with anxiety. And he doesn't say, because I have mathematically proven that everything Jesus said is true. He says this, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he, Jesus, is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. The claims of Christ are an invitation for us to trust Jesus not because they make sense to us in the moment, but because he is the one who lived, died, and rose again to bring us life. So do we want to go away as well? That's the question he asks us this morning. Father, we come to you, God, and we confess that more often than not, we don't know what we want We don't know how to process the heartache of this world. We don't know how to process the things that are, uh, quite frankly, out of our league to understand. And yet, Jesus, you came and you entered into our time and our place so that we could know you, that you might put uh, death on trial, that you might bring life forevermore. Father, I pray that in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our dishonesty, Lord, that you would allow us to see you this morning with your hands open, ready to receive us. In Jesus' name, amen.